0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. Today is March 1st. My name is Alex and I'm joined today by senior tech reporter on the FinTech Beat. It's Marianne Azevedo. Hey, Marianne, how are you?
1: Alex, I'm good, but I think I need another one of those Nespresso's that we were talking about before the show.
0: Marianne and I, if you didn't know, walk around toting behind us a intravenous drip of coffee just to keep our <laughs> blood coffee levels where they need to be. Illegal in several states, but very good for podcasting. Jokes aside, to Marianne, today is something of a special or important day for my history at TechCrunch, which is that I think the paywall came off of all TechCrunch Plus stuff at midnight last night. So if all goes well, according to plan and you know, technical issues aside, we're recording this Thursday afternoon. So, you know, it hasn't happened yet when I'm recording this, but it should be by the time you hear it. All of TechCrunch Plus stuff should be freely readable by everybody. So end of an era, but also an open door, I suppose.
1: What a huge gift to
0: our readers. Please read them. Make me feel good. Anyways, on the show today, deals of the week, we have Stripe and Fervo Energy, one from the world of fintech, one from the world of ripping heat out of the earth. So a little bit of diversity on our deals. Then we are going to dive into Marianne's recent investigation into startups that have been built to shut down other startups? I have many questions about this. That's going to be a fun one. And then we're going to wrap up with an update on AI ownership and legality with a special note on Microsoft's recent investment into the French Mistral AI. But first, Marianne, Stripe is back in the news. And once again, it's not going public. What's going on now?
1: Right, right. So Stripe's valuation has been on a roller coaster ride over the past three years. So I reported, I think it was, was it just yesterday, that its valuation is now back up 30%, to be exact, to $65 billion as the company announced a tender offer, basically, meaning that It wanted to provide liquidity to current and former employees. It deals with investors and also to itself is buying some of these shares back. So the investors in Stripe together are purchasing over a billion dollars of current and former Stripe employee shares. So this is notable for a few reasons. One, just last year, the company was valued at $50 billion when it raised $6.5 billion. At the time, it raised that money for this very same purpose to provide liquidity to employees and shareholders. This also means that it is most likely not going to go public this year.
0: Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Okay, so I pulled some data before we jumped on, and I want to walk people through how we got to today because you just did a great job encapsulating the latest stuff. But go back to 2020, Series G from Stripe was worth about 600 at about a $36 billion valuation. Then 2021 comes, as we all know, things went crazy, especially FinTech. The Series H was also $600 million, moving the company up to a $95 billion valuation. Not a triple, but, you know, not a double either. A very impressive fundraise.
1: And it made it, I think, probably the largest or one of the largest, well, highly valued private companies. That particular
0: raise. I mean, also one of the largest in revenue terms. So I think you're right both ways. But yes, in valuation data, it stood out. I think maybe SpaceX is above it. This is roughly where Uber got to pre-IPO. It's kind of where you see private companies top out. I feel like if you were Mm -hmm. the Hyundai, you know, go public. The company didn't. And then we had Marianne's listed Series I from 2023. That was the $6.5 billion tender offer. I'm sorry, liquidity and uh, tax event. That was a $50 billion valuation. And then now greater than $1 billion, tender offer, $65 billion valuation. $65 billion, Marianne. Does that feel high to you?
1: You know, it's really hard to say, Alex. I mean, our own Rebecca reported earlier this year that based on secondary trading activity, the company was valued more like around $53 billion. So I I did feel a little bit high based on that. What's interesting about Stripe is it, I mean, it's it's obviously huge. They have really big customers and they've named some of them, including Microsoft, Uber, Best Buy. But at the same time, and this is a little gossip we heard from up front, there's a lot of complaints about the company, apparently, a lot of chatter that people complain about things like it's really hard to disengage, fees are very, or cannot say the word. Onerous. Onerous. There's a lack of transparency into fees. So I, I feel like there is some frustration with Stripe and there are competitors out there. We've covered a few of them, including Phoenix, for example. So anyway, but it's still forging on. People still really care about it. And I think we all still can't wait to see if and when it goes public.
0: Yeah. Dan Premack over at Axios, who's actually been on this show way back in the day, he wrote about it today and he said, or I guess it was this week, I forget if it was Thursday or Friday that this newsletter came out, but he said, you know, what if Stripe just doesn't go out? What if they just don't go public? <laughs> oh Mostly gosh. you have to, if you raise external capital, it's, it's the game, right? Marianne, you raise money, grow fast, and then exit either via an IPO or an acquisition or whatever. But Stripe, you know, it's so big and so valuable and so able to kind of like control its own financial destiny, as we're seeing through these last two transactions, that maybe it doesn't and just pays dividends, I guess. It's just to not go out and have a traditional liquidity event means that it either has to repurchase all of its investor stock, which they won't want to give up for less than a fat premium, or it has to pay dividends, which means it has to be cash flow positive at an absolutely massive basis. But venture-backed private companies don't do those two things. And so I'm perplexed by this, and I'm disappointed that everyone is saying that this new offer, this new tender offer, is going to delay the IPO again. I mean, what are they waiting for?
1: You know, Alex, it's a good question. I would be really surprised if they don't eventually go public. I think even just for public perception sake, I don't know, maybe they're waiting for the market to shift a bit. I can't really say. I would be really surprised if it doesn't happen at least sometime in the next year, year and a half or two.
0: That's a 12, 18 (laughs) or 24 24. (laughs) month time. It may happen (laughs) some point in time in the future. No, but I I only beef because I think you're being reasonable in your point there. I think it could be several years if they decide to go out, which is just bonkers. When did going public become the thing that everyone doesn't want to do? It was the moment of like proof of maturity and success. And we built something big and now we're going to be more public. And, you know, I, I just I find it so strange that we're that we're seeing this Zerp philosophy persist into a more traditional economic environment. And it feels like a, a, a disjointed approach to the modern market because this is not 2021 anymore. And you can't keep pretending that there's always going to be unlimited capital for private companies. It seems to me to be unnecessarily risky. And also there's no advantage to it.
1: I think it's interesting also that, I mean, Plaid is on its way to going public. And, you know, the, those two have become increasingly competitive as well, right? Kind of getting into each other's areas more and more. So you almost wonder if they're like kind of playing a waiting game to see who goes public first and to see how the other does. I mean, not that, it, of course, their actions are not that dependent on what their competitors are doing necessarily, but I mean, they're both on the path to going public. Their markets or what they do overlaps. We've got Klarna in the wings also probably going public soon, not necessarily in the same space, but FinTech. So I don't know. I feel like we're just like sitting here. This is me and Alex on the edge of a cliff, binding our nails, just waiting, waiting to see what happens with all these FinTechs and whether or not they'll go public and when.
0: Okay, so you brought up some great stuff there that I have to touch on. So first of all, if we do see Plaid go out before Stripe, I'm going to buy Zach Parrott like a coffee because that would be (laughs) hilarious to me.
1: It could happen.
0: Oh, it could easily happen. But I think it'd be more an indictment of Stripe than an endorsement of Plaid, which is not to take away from Plaid's success. I mean, to be clear, they've done quite well. But I mean, Lord above. To me, Stripe just seems mismanaged at this point versus being, you know, like savvy in its approach to to not going public. Klarna, though, kind of a wild card. Yeah. I, have you read their latest numbers? They just dropped their 2023 annual report.
1: Yeah, they were pretty good still. Yeah, you know, think, I mean,
0: Klarna's doing fine improving its profitability growing faster than its core market you know using ai in a lot of neat ways i guess what that, what this says to me is there's a lot of health it appears in the fintech market and sure valuations aren't where they used to be but that doesn't mean these aren't great companies like no one no one thinks stripe is hiding a bunch of dead rats in its you know income statement i don't think Not at, at all. least Yeah, so maybe maybe Platt will be the first one bold enough to actually go out and do this, but I I hope they do. All right. Anyways, let's move on and go from the world of high technology and finance straight into the bowels of the earth where we hunt out heat. Because, Marianne, if you want to do geothermal energy, you have to dig. And that brings us to Fervo energy, about which I am fervently energetic because it just raised more than $200 million to commercialize and expand on geothermal energy. And Marianne, I have to say, turns out they're doing some work down, I believe, in Texas.
1: Yeah, they're based in Houston. So this was really interesting to me. I will not pretend that I really get the technology itself because it's Mm -hmm. very complex, Although Tim, the reporter who covered it, did a great job of kind of breaking it down. But it was fascinating for a few reasons. Just the technology itself, what it can do. They use directional drilling techniques that were pioneered by the oil and gas industry to extend wells that they make, quote, far beyond their surface footprints. $221 million is huge. It's a lot of money, especially now. It's based in Houston, which I also find interesting, and that's because a lot of techniques they're using, a lot of the talent they're using is out of the oil and gas industry, which is predominantly in the Houston area. Now, I lived in Houston for 14 years. The city has kind of a bad rep, I think. It's actually much more cool, much more diverse than one would expect. Restaurants are amazing. But anyway... It's kind of neat to see a company out of Houston raising this kind of money. It makes sense when you understand what they're doing and how they're doing it. And another thing that I found interesting, early angel investors include Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, Bill Gates, and Masayoshi Son. That's kind of a high profile list of early angels. Absolutely.
0: And what do Jeffy, Richie, Billy, and Masa have in common? Well, two things. One, lots of money and also a general bias towards things that might make humanity slightly better off. The Gates Foundation is the kind of er example of that, I think right now, amongst tech philanthropy. But if we can get geothermal energy to work at scale, it has a couple of major advantages. Marianne, you touched on the location of it and the talent. We already have a lot of people that can do horizontal drilling from centralized wells, thanks to the fracking industry. And we also know that the planet's very hot. And so if you can get down there, you can create a temperature differential that will yield steam, which is what basically everything does in the world of power generation to spin turbines and then create electricity. Hydroelectric is an exception to that, but that's slightly different. So I asked Tim how this works because much like yourself, Marianne, I'm not a scientist. And it turns out that it gets really hot, much closer to the surface than I thought. And Mm. all you need to make steam is hundred degrees Celsius. And so some of these wells are getting up to like 200. So plenty of energy down there that you can use to essentially create steam, run these turbines. I love this. I don't know exactly how it works. That part's lost on me. But what this yields is something that can do baseload power. And if you're asking yourself, Alex, what's baseload power? That's what I asked Tim. And Tim said it means that it is a constant source of energy. Wind power, solar power, both awesome, but episodic when you have wind or when you have mm-hmm. sun. So you okay. don't need batteries to make geothermal energy work, which means that it's just more consistent and therefore cheaper probably to operate. And we're just taking some of the earth's heat. You no, know, like a little mosquito Sucking out the energy. And I think this is just super, duper cool.
1: It's fascinating. It's really fascinating, especially to me, because you're taking these, you know, fracking is kind of a controversial practice. You're taking these techniques and actually turning it into something that can be very, very positive, right, for the earth, the environment. I love that. And as the oil and gas industry sort of shifts, And, you know, giving workers another place they can go. There's a lot. of, I mean, there's just so many amazing, cool things about this.
0: Marianne, why? Why is fracking controversial? Oh, I don't think we have time to get into that right now, but. We, We can list a couple of things that happens. For example, waves of microquakes. Waves. Right? Like it can lead to lots more localized seismic activity, for example. So fracking is not a solution to all of our problems. But in this case, it is the application of an oil and gas technique to something that is much better. I don't think we're ever going to have a technology power solution that is perfect. But I do think that this is one that does have a lot of potential that is quite exciting.
1: And it does
0: also give me a chance to bring up my new pet topic, which is a video game named Dyson Sphere Program. I love (laughs) kind of like city management factory automation games because they tickle my brain. And I find it really fun to kind of think about this sort of company after having my head stuck in that world because it's all about power generation and resource management and all that stuff. And there's also geothermal power in that world. And so when I saw this come up, I'm like, we have to bring up Fervo because I want to say the words Dyson Sphere program on the podcast at least twice. And now I've done it. You did it. Yay. (laughs) All right. When we come back from a very short break, we are going to talk about how VCs are investing and taking apart their own investments. It'll be a lot of fun. We're right back after this.
1: So this week I wrote about this phenomenon that seems to be happening in the startup world We had two companies this week that raised in this space. I have to share the backstory about this really quickly. Okay. So about a month ago, I was like, you know, I've noticed there's more startups that have been created to help other startups shut down. Let me reach out to them. I'd like to write a feature on this topic. Coincidentally, both those startups were like, oh, glad you touched base. We just raised some money. So I was like, perfect timing. So I decided to to write this feature and the two startups that raise money in this space are Sunset and Simple Closure. Okay, so Sunset raised $1.45 million in seed funding, mostly from angel investors. I'll get into that more later. Simple Closure raised another $4 million. This was less than six months after it raised $1.5 million in pre-seed money, which I did cover back in the day, which was only like six months ago. And then also, Carta announced a similar offering in February called Carta Conclusion. So to summarize basically, what they're what they're all trying to do is help these startups, which, by the way, the statistics show that about 90 percent of startups do end up failing. So right? That's a huge total addressable market, right? I mean, you know, you've got a lot of potential customers out there and what they're doing is trying to make it easier, faster, just more streamlined, cheaper, supposedly for these companies to wind down operations. And that includes things like helping them dispose of their assets, their IP, tax questions, all of it.
0: So I really like this, but I want to start with the names. So Sunset, that's what you do when you kill off a product. It gets sunsetted. Simple right. closure, though, sounds more like a therapy technique for people who just got dumped. But OK, <laughs> I'll allow it. And then Carta conclusions. That just sounds like a poorly named like data blog. Like here are Carta's conclusions versus Carta taking you to the point of conclusion. I, I, euphemistic names drive me bonkers, but I guess these are all relatively twee and therefore acceptable by the, the marketplace. First question, Marianne. $1.45 million for Sunset, not a lot of money. Is this more of a services business than a software
1: business? Well, that's a good question. I, I feel like it's a little bit of both. It's okay. not a ton of money, but I think they're just, they're trying to be careful. That's a good point that you raised because one of the co-founders that I talked to, Brendan Mahoney, told me that after talking to a lot of these startups, part of their issue, the reason why they were winding down is that even though they had good businesses, they had decent ARR, they had raised venture capital. And even though they were doing well, they weren't building what you would call you know, a venture scale business. And so they were like, okay, we're just going to cut our losses and, and move on.
0: So why does that happen? If you're listening to this and you are less deep in the world of venture, let me try to help here a little bit venture capital invests in a company, comes with expectations. You're essentially on a timer or a treadmill, if you will. VCs invest capital ahead of your ability to generate revenue and gross profit to fund your operations. So you can hire more, build more, invest more in sales and grow more quickly. The trade-off is you take on capital, you're expected to grow like mad. And a VC will value a business that is at $5 million in annual recurring revenue, and that's growing at 1% per year, at $0. The same VC may value a company at $5 million in ARR growing at 100% each year at a gajillion dollars because growth is what startups do. So if you end up flatlining at a single digit ARR number, you can't effectively lose all your venture momentum. And then you have a cost basis that you can't support. And then you essentially have to decide what to do with it because you're not gonna raise more money for a non-growth business. So revenue is an important thing to keep track of, but for startups, growth really is the name of the game. And I'm not shocked that we're seeing, Marianne, companies with ARR hit a wall because right now it's harder to raise money.
1: It's harder to raise money. And so that's what these co founders realized. And they said, you know what? We don't, we don't want to be caught in that. We don't want to raise a lot of capital and then ourselves be in the same boat as many of our customers. So they chose to go through this, this non traditional way of fundraising. Most of their investment dollars came from angel investors, including hustle funds, Eric Bond, weekend funds, Ryan Hoover, layoffs.fyi creator Roger Lee, who is also a founder himself. And so another interesting thing about this is, They're offering their investors an incentive. This is something I wanted to delve into, but kind of ran out of time and made revisit. But basically, they're saying, hey, if you refer us customers, your stake goes up. Now,
0: Marianne, I got to say, watching the guy who does the layoffs website invest in the company that helps other companies die feels a little bit like the newspaper reporter in charge of local obituaries putting capital into the funeral parlor. But we will have a chance to talk to him about this very soon.
1: Yeah. I'll be interviewing him next week for an equity episode that will air a week from this Saturday. So definitely keep your ears and eyes open for that.
0: Yes. And if you don't know what we're talking about, just go to layoffs.fyi. It's a fantastic website. I've used their data time and time again, since it launched to help understand what's going on out there in the world of tech layoffs.
1: Also, a simple closure side, Infinity Ventures led their raise, which also included, quote, strong participation from Anthemus Group, Fox Capital, other existing backers. They claim that they've seen a ton of growth, that they've crossed seven figures in annualized revenue already.
0: Yeah. Okay. So services or software is an important question to ask because in the world of high growth startups, if you're doing services, you'll never have great gross margins and you only scale with headcount, which is inefficient. So everyone wants to build software, very high gross margins, easy to scale, et cetera. These businesses though are a little bit more hands-on. It feels Ann because when I read your story, we're talking about IP. We're talking about incorporation, a lot of things that could have edge cases, nuance to them, legal ramifications. And so it probably is not that easy. So the (laughs) annualized number versus an annual recurring revenue figure makes a lot of sense to me. And I'm not shocked that they're seeing that much demand. I just wonder how hard is it to go from single digit millions in annualized revenue for these companies to double digit millions in annualized revenue?
1: One other thing I do want to point out, while this is kind of new in the startup world in terms of companies doing this, it's not new at all. I mean, obviously businesses have been shutting down for years and years. I did talk to Marty Pynchinson from Sherwood Partners, who's been doing this for like 25 years since the dot com bust. Uh, so I just wanted to point that out. So, you know, it, even though startups are kind of now really getting into it, there have been other institutions doing it for some time now. But I, I, I'm i curious to see how this plays out, especially as markets change. I don't know. It's kind of fascinating to me. I'm going to definitely be paying attention.
0: Yeah, I remember I, I had this like Memory from the back of my head. I'm on Caltrain in the Bay Area. I'm probably like 17, 18, and I'm reading Red Herring in print. Yes. Yes. And I remember reading about a company that did this, and they were talking about what do you do with 500 office chairs and printers and stuff. Clearly, and in a different era of the tech you know, industry, but it just goes to show to your point that shutting down companies that have a non-traditional asset base, IP, some hardware, et cetera, is is a challenge and one that is unique. It is a little sad to see a startup cluster emerge around helping startups die, but it's better to have tools and services to do this than to not because then it's just a mess. So
1: Yeah, I think I'd like to end this on a quote from Infinity Ventures co-founder Jeremy Jonker, whose firm led that financing into simple closure. He said, we are seeing a meaningful increase in startups facing challenges. Historically, these startups raised at robust valuations and have not grown into the metrics necessary to raise an up round. As such, they are facing the question of raising at a meaningful down round, selling the company, and or potentially shutting down the business. Therefore, he said, he thinks the addressable opportunity for his investment, of course, is sizable and increasing every day. Wow. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but yes, definitely truth to that, I think.
0: I have many more analogies, but I'm not sure which ones would get us in trouble. So I'm going to go ahead and not make any more to avoid that, and instead move us on to AI, the legality thereof, and this recent Microsoft investment into Mistral AI. Marianne, should I give people an overview or just dive right in?
1: Maybe a very quick one, Alex.
0: Okay, so... OpenAI comes out and goes, woohoo, look at this, look at what we built. Everyone goes, oh shit, we need to catch up in the world of AI. We can't have all the foundation model companies be American. Enter France. And Mistral AI, which quickly raised a lot of money and has put together some very impressive large language models that I keep seeing people talk about on Twitter and apparently are seeing wide adoption amongst certain startups. So Mistral is kind of like the European Union's shot at having a leading company in the current moment of AI. Now, Will it succeed? I don't know. Certainly has raised less capital than certain companies, your Anthropics, your Open AIs, but it does have a good foothold. And then Microsoft decided to put 15 million euro into the business. But Marianne, Microsoft owns 49% of Open AI's commercial division, which led to you asking a question for us in our prep call.
1: Yeah, I was kind of confused. I was like, wait a minute, if Microsoft is such a big shareholder in open AI, is this not a conflict of interest? Like, I mean, is it because it's a different continent that it feels like it's not or what? Cause I don't know, it just, it feels a little, little weird to me.
0: Yes, it does seem a little weird. But is it actually a point of conflict or merely a conflict in point? And I think the issue here is Microsoft wants to spread its bets around just because that's not a bad way to hedge. For example, what if OpenAI suddenly slows down and Mistral makes better programs? Well, then it has a small piece of it. But I don't think Microsoft really expects OpenAI to not be one of the leading companies in the foundation model business in the next 10 years. So why this deal? And why does OpenAI probably not care that they've done this? I think it's to cover their butt legally. We have seen governments around the world start to say, you know, this Microsoft OpenAI deal seems a little odd, perhaps too cute by half, if you want to use the English idiom. And by that, I mean Microsoft has managed to find a way to get a lot of visibility and ownership of OpenAI's work, but not bring it into its actual auspices and therefore avoid antitrust scrutiny and so forth.
1: Very interesting theory I hadn't thought of. I mean, I'll just say one more thing on this topic because I know we need to move on to other other things related to open AI, but I had a little bit of a flashback to Sequoia backing out of oh, its God. investment in Phoenix because it was a big investor in Stripe. So, I know Microsoft is not a venture capital firm per se, but anyway, it's just really interesting to me how there are different ways of these sort of things being handled, depending on the players and the industry.
0: Another theory, because now that you've raised that up, it's actually a very salient example. The thing that I would throw in is, what's the chance that OpenAI buys Mistral? Mm, yeah. Microsoft yeah. would then own both sides of that particular coin. So heads or tails, they win, right? Mm, I don't know. That's good I don't point. like that. Microsoft is savvy. And they have been moving really fast to get AI integrated into their products. I just saw them release a new co-pilot for finance this week or something. So they're they're busy with it, but there is some kind of clouds on the horizon, if you will. And you may recall that the New York Times sued OpenAI essentially for ingesting its material as part of at least through GPT-2's model creation, Marianne. And there's been a little bit of pushback there.
1: Yeah, I mean, OpenAI is defending itself, and they're saying that the publication hacked into its product and basically repeated something like thousands of times to try to get the result it wanted to claim that OpenAI was using its material like verbatim. So there's a lot of back and forth. I have like mixed feelings about this because as a writer, if OpenAI takes my articles and then it's just spouting it off verbatim. I don't know how I feel about that. And do they credit the publications from which they get this material? I don't think so. Is that not plagiarism? I don't know. There's a lot of blurriness here.
0: Edge case though, right? Like, I don't think that most of the time you type in, you know, tell me why Sequoia backed out of Phoenix and it's not going to say, well, you know, here's Marianne's story. I'm not going to credit her. I do think that's possible, but I think OpenAI has made a reasonable case that that is sufficiently fringe as to be more of indicative of the data source versus than the data's use. That's might been my read of it, but I don't know. I spent a lot of time writing stuff and caring about it and doing the work, and it does seem odd to me that it can be taken, ingested, smoothied, and then reserved on the other end for profit without my work being compensated because if or we hadn't done this or, yeah
1: yeah then exactly
0: then they wouldn't exist
1: yeah that's i mean really that's what i mean i have mixed feelings about it so they can claim all these things about oh it's public it's all this and it's all that but that doesn't make it right
0: no also the the value exchange that we have in the world of search i know some people are thinking well what about search yeah but spidering and linking is different than ingesting wholesale and and regurgitating it in part out. or whole. Right. right. And I think that the AI companies kind of agree with this because they're signing deals with, with different companies. Like, for example, Reddit's data is often used in certain data sets that are fed into LLMs, and they are making several hundred million dollars a year now, according to their IPO filing, for that work. You know, I've written thousands of things for TechCrunch. And, you know, I don't own any of them. I guess, I don't know. The money behind private equity funds that invested into Apollo, that own Yahoo, that own TechCrunch, that own me own it. (laughs) But, you know, if I'm generating value outside the business, I think the business should get paid for. It It feels weird to be saying that that's controversial because a lot of the folks who are saying that this stuff should be ingested for free because it's important are also the ones who are capitalists in their own right. They're just, Mm -hmm. in this case, saying that it's more important for the tech to move faster than for the capital to flow where it should, which I think is self-serving. I'm not shocked. It's business, but it does seem slightly gross to me. It does. Summing all that up, it's going to be fun to see where the courts go on this.
1: Yeah, especially because it becomes really complicated because how, I mean, I don't even see how they could, if they wanted to compensate the companies or publications or whatever. I mean, you know, that would become extremely complicated, probably slow them down greatly. And I just don't see how that could happen realistically.
0: The American model in technology and governance is to let business run ahead and do lots of things. And then we come with a dustpan and a broom afterwards and try to tidy it up. Crypto. (laughs) Okay. Yes, super valid, although also unpopular. there amongst the same venture capital set. But in this case, we have let OpenAI build a multi-billion dollar a year business off the back of stuff they didn't make. And I think there should be a way to get compensated for that because the companies that are backing them are famously litigious right? Do you think Microsoft would give you the benefit of the doubt so you could build tech off of its data? No. No. So I would just like some consistency from the tech players here. You can't, you can't be worth $3 trillion and dash around money in the tens of billions and then tell me when you use my shit that it's, it's hard. It's capitalism for me and not for thee is how it feels, which I just think is ridiculous. I'm a capitalist. I made a thing. You're using it. Let's have the value flow both ways.
1: I that would be the uh, right thing to do.
0: Last thing, Marianne, just on the startup front, I will say that Mistral continues to win, which is good for the EU, which is good for the local startup scenes in France. And France does seem to be, I think, right now, the most interesting startup market in Europe, taking out Germany. I think as as, as lead in that role.
1: Very interesting. Yeah, it announced earlier this week it was building new a new large language model that could really rival Chat
0: GPT four. Yeah, which is impressive because GPT-4 is kind of still, I think, state-of-the-art. Although, I would love to see GPT-5, you know, sooner the better. Here's a fun game. Will we get to AGI before Stripe goes public? We may (laughs) never know because we might (laughs) die before both. All right. uh, That is our show for this fine Friday. Equity, of course, is back on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday of next week. And we do have an interview coming out this weekend. Marianne, tell us what's coming up.
1: I talked to NewBank CEO, David Velez. The company just recently crossed, I think it was a $50 billion market cap. And yeah, we had an interesting conversation about that and just flat-am in general. So... Definitely don't miss it. He, he's a great interview.
0: Yeah, he really is. And of course, we have moved our Wednesday show to more startup-focused topics. It's a deep dive on funding rounds and that sort of thing. And so we've scooted our interviews into the weekend to ensure that we can stay as focused as we can on our core topics while bringing in other voices. All right, that's all the time we have for today. We are Equity Pod over on X and Threads. We are TechCrunch Pods on TikTok. The TechCrunch Podcast Network has two sister shows to this one, Chain Reaction with Jackie Melanick on all things crypto, and then Found with Becca Scuta and Dominic Midori-Davis talking to founders about how they built what they did. We'll see you all at early stage. Goodbye. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Alex Wilhelm and TechCrunch senior reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa solo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet who manages TechCrunch audio products. Thank you so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time.